Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey, and I started this podcast a couple of years ago because I really enjoy talking with and learning from other researchers. Today, I'm glad to bring you part two of this multi-part series featuring Earth system scientists with disabilities. In part one, I spoke with Dr. Caitlin Naughton, my friend, colleague, and co-producer of this series, about her experiences navigating the world with a stammer, also known as a stutter, in U.S. English. As part of planning this series, we put out a call online for contributions from Earth System scientists with disabilities, and the response was pretty incredible for us. We received a number of written contributions, audio contributions, which we really appreciate. It, uh, it can be hard, it can be difficult to talk about and be open about this stuff because it's so personal and you have to be a bit vulnerable. You have to be willing to be a bit vulnerable when talking about it. So we really, really appreciate all those contributions. In any case, uh, we will continue to bring you those contributions from people as part of this series one of the volunteers who stepped up is Dr. Anita Marshall. She's a lecturer at the University of Florida, and she's broadly interested in geoscience education, accessible and inclusive teaching, and diversity in STEM. Dr. Marshall is also the Director of Operations of the International Association for Geoscience Diversity, the IAGD, and uh, that's a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating access and inclusion for students faculty, and professionals with disabilities in the geosciences. Dr. Marshall was in a car accident a number of years ago, and as a result, she has mobility restrictions, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And uh, in terms of her scientific interest, the, she works on volcanology and near-surface geophysics, but we didn't really talk about that. So Caitlin Naughton also joined me for this chat as a co-host, which is excellent. It really helped. It helped to have another person in the conversation who has direct experience with a different kind of disability. So thank you very much again to Caitlin for the idea for the series, for the production help, and for the co-hosting help on this episode. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, okay, so I will give you all the Twitter and website info at the end, at the end of the podcast, so that's coming up. And uh, I want to go ahead and get you to this as quickly as possible. So let's just go ahead and get into this conversation about navigating the world of science and the world more generally with a mobility-related disability. Here we go. I have nieces and nephews, so yeah. Yes. Two biological nephews and then two nieces, well, two girls that I call my nieces that are basically my best friend's kids. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. But yeah, you know, it's interesting. I grew up in a uh, military family and what we're going through now kind of reminds me of some of the things when I was a kid, um, you know, uh, during Desert Storm, for example, we were deployed, we lived in Germany and everybody, you know, everybody's parents went off to war and, you know, we had to sort of carry on in this very unusual situation. And I was in middle school at the time, and it was so hard to focus on things like schoolwork and trying to, you know, 
go about your normal life when like nothing was normal, you know, no. it was, it was, yeah, there, there are a lot of parallels to the stresses that the parents that were left behind were facing, trying to, you know, keep the households running and trying to sort of, well, like you, you were saying earlier, minimize trauma and, you know, yeah. it was, yeah, it was a big ask for, you know, parents in that situation. It was a big ask for us kids as well. And I really feel like in some ways I empathize with kids that are going through this just because like I I have some experience with being in extremely difficult situations as a kid. You know, we since we were overseas, they had our base on lockdown. We had armed checkpoint, you know, guards at checkpoints at both sides of the base. Nobody came in or out. It was, yeah. you know, and we just had, you know, sort of try to do normal things like homework <laughs> and stuff. And yeah, it was, it was pretty challenging. <laughs> yeah. Like how, how do you convince yourself that like that your math homework is important when like your parent is you know, in a war zone, like that's a real challenge. I have no idea. How to, I did not successfully uh, convince myself, which is why my middle school grades were horrible. <laughs> 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 I was not successfully convinced that, that was a priority. <laughs> and on some level, it's, it's, that's correct, right? Like on some level, like, no, your parents, you know, and your loved ones, their well-being literally is more important, but somehow you have to get the other stuff done too, you know, in, in addition, it's yeah. really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in, uh, you're in Florida at the moment. I am. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm a lecturer at the university of Florida in Gainesville. So that's in the Northern part of Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up in Georgia in, uh, near Savannah and Statesboro. So I'm, I'm familiar with the, with the area. Right. Um, and I've been, I've got a friend in Thomasville who's a dentist in Thomasville right across the, the state line there. Um, so are you having to do a lot of online teaching right now? It's all online. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, UF closed mid-March and um, gave us a weekend to shift our classes to online formats. A, week, a weekend. A weekend. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. So a lot of school, because our spring break is so early, our spring break was already finished by the time schools decided to close down for the pandemic. So whereas some schools that had later spring breaks, their faculty had that spring break to prep. Mm. We had a weekend. Oh my gosh. So what did you do? How did you handle that? <laughs> well, thankfully the, I was already teaching one class that was fully online to begin with. So um, that class didn't require as much effort, but as we quickly realized, even our online students were going through incredible difficulty. And to assume that no changes needed to be made in the online course just because they weren't in-person students was completely false. They were still going through the same things that all the other students were going through with lost jobs and sick family and the disruption. Most of them were online students, but they were taking it from school. So at home, they might not have had reliable internet or a computer that wasn't being shared by four people or, you know, so there was, there was quite a lot of adaptation even for my online courses. My in-person my, my in class was really small. It was a hazards class, which seemed kind of that was interesting, teaching a hazards class through a pandemic. Everything just sort of took on a really interesting <laughs> undertone. There's the other um, stuff that could go wrong, too. <laughs> hey, while you're in the let's middle just... of fearing for your lives, let's talk about some other things that can kill you. <laughs> you know, it's, 
This could I, happen anytime. Any one of these things. <laughs> In fact, I, I found myself softening the blow of some of my uh, typical lectures. Um, basically, you know, giving the typical lecture on the hazard and how it works and all that, but then sort of dovetailing into um, recovery or the more nuanced version, you know, like for wildfires, for example, they're horrible when they're happening, but for some ecosystems, they're vital. And it's the only way you get, you know, certain types of beautiful trees and wildflowers and, you know, fires support some ecosystems in a way that nothing else can replicate. And so, you know, I was trying to sort of show them that, you know, it's not as complex as everything on earth is trying to kill us. You know, it's not as simple as everything on earth is trying to kill us. It's, you know, there's nuance and there's good and bad and ebb and flow and trying to sort of (laughs) not just scare the crap out of them in every lecture. Yeah. Are the other hazards like earthquakes and, super volcanoes and volcanoes and things like that is that tsunamis you know i guess those are yeah what's interesting here in florida is because we don't have any of those um students have this remarkable ability to compartmentalize those particular hazards and they'll talk about you know volcanic disasters and earthquakes all day because to them it's not something they have to personally worry about Mm -hmm. So I I noticed that the collective anxiety sort of ramped up when we started talking about hurricanes because we all here in Florida are very sensitive to our hurricane risk. Mm. Climate change where, you know, a third of Florida is, you know, going to be underwater with just a few feet of sea level rise Mm -hmm. and wildfires because you know, like those are hazards that could actually happen here. So all of a sudden there was this almost palpable rise in anxiety when we hit the topics that could possibly be relevant to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so they were in the middle of this coping with the pandemic situation and having to study all the other stuff that right. could, go, could go horribly wrong. <laughs> trying to soften the blow on that as much as I could. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I kind of fully recognize that like we could end up talking about science stuff all day. And I kind of felt the pull to like, I want to ask you more questions about hazards and more questions about what you're, what you're teaching and what you're, what you're studying. And I, I just want to, you know, you and I, we could definitely do a kind of regular episode if you wanted to do that someday. And that sure. Would be that'd totally, be great. Yeah. We, we should, we should look into that. Um, I'm happy to do that and we, we should schedule it. Um, for this episode, you know, as you know, we're talking about disability and the experience of people uh, with disabilities in the geosciences or maybe how those disabilities kind of limit access in some ways. So if you don't mind, um, can you tell me a little bit about your experience in that area? Uh, is there a disability that you have that uh, I know you're part of this um this organization, the uh, International Association for Geoscience D- Diversity, um, which is uh, a nonprofit. That I'm just reading from your website. Dedicated to creating access and inclusion for students, faculty, and professionals with disability in the geosciences. So that's something you're you're active in. Can you tell me a little bit about your your experience, and then at some point we can also talk about that organization too. Sure, I'd I'd love to. So. Uh, my personal experience, I 
um, was not born with my disability. In fact, I didn't have a disability until my early 20s. Um, I did my undergraduate geology degree and most of my master's degree as a, a fully able-bodied student. So um, in the final year of my master's program, I was in a near-fatal car accident just off campus. And um, after a long stint in the hospital, um, six reconstructive surgeries, uh, a year in a wheelchair, lots of physical therapy, um, I'm finally back up on two feet and I get around pretty well. Uh, in fact, on campus, most people don't realize that I have a disability if we're just, say, walking from building to building. Um, I especially if I'm, I'm wearing pants and it covers up all the grafts and scars and stuff um, on my legs, it, I, can, I can pass for non-disabled in, in a lot of situations, which has benefits and, and drawbacks. Um, there are, you know, when you're, when you're visibly disabled, people know right away that you need some form of accommodation. You know, if you roll up in a wheelchair, People aren't going to take the stairs with you when you're walking to somebody's office, right? They're immediately going to go to the elevator. Um, but, you know, it also affords me access. You know, it, it's good because it affords me access that, you know, a lot of my disabled friends don't have. But it also means that I'm constantly having to explain myself to people when, uh, you know, there's some day, I have what I call good leg days and bad leg days, lots of things like pressure changes and weather and all kinds of things uh, make my leg not function very well. And, you know, there are some days I can't take the stairs. I got to take the elevator, but I look like a perfectly healthy person. So, you know, I always have to have that awkward conversation at the base of the stairs on like, hey, uh, let's uh, take the elevator today, you know. Right. Um, and I have, because I'm missing some organs and some arteries, I have chronic fatigue. So I get tired really fast, which is probably one of the biggest challenges um, when I do field work is that I just wear out really fast. Um, so there's a limit to what kind of terrain I can do because of the function of my, of my uh, especially my left leg. But the, the chronic fatigue has by far been the, the biggest challenge is, you know, there are just some days I have no energy. Uh, to, you know, get up a hill or down that trail, so. Right, right. And it's not a question of finding some reserve. It's a, it's a limit. You know, your body simply cannot, you know, do it anymore, right? It's just. Right. Like, yeah. So people that are familiar with doing field work with me, I often will describe it as what kind of relationship I'm currently having with my left leg. <laughs> and um, at some point, it my leg basically it's not speaking to me anymore. Like it. So when I had to relearn to walk, I'm missing a lot of nerves in my left leg. And so when we learn to walk as kids, um, it becomes so ingrained in our motor processes that we actually don't have to really take up a lot of brain space to say, Oh, I'm going to walk from here to there. And you, we just do it. Right. But because I'm missing some of the nerve, some of the vital nerves in that leg, I literally have to tell myself like every move, right? Pick your foot up, put your foot down, pick your foot up, 
put your hook down. And it's, it's why they really weren't sure if I was going to be able to walk again or not. It was because I was missing, you know, I had all this nerve damage. And so basically talking to the lower part of my leg is challenging. So even if I'm having an in-depth conversation with somebody and trying to walk someplace at the same time, I'll actually start tripping and stumbling because it's taking up too much brain energy to have these like in-depth science conversations while I'm trying to tell my leg what to do. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's led to some slightly awkward situations before where all of a sudden I'm just tripping and stumbling. And again, I have to explain myself, right? Like, honestly, if it's people that aren't familiar with me, I'll usually blow it off. I'll, I'll sort of brush it off as, oh, sorry, I'm just a klutz. Like, oh, uh, you know, and I, you know, cause I don't want to go into it, but it's not that it's, it's that my disability makes it very hard to walk and think about anything else at the same time. So yeah, yeah. there's, and you know, what's interesting is I started out as a fully able student. So I have all those experiences that able-bodied geology students get. I went to field camp. I've done all kinds of hiking and adventuring and you know, rugged field work in the middle of nowhere. I've, I've done all that. But then um, when I, there was a seven year gap between my master's degree and my PhD where I was getting physical therapy and relearning to walk and all that. And coming back to do a PhD with a disability was a completely different universe because, you know, I had to relearn how to do field work. I couldn't do field work the way I did before my accident. And you know, there were times where that was a, that was a tough nut to crack. That was something that was just pretty difficult to figure out, but yeah. you know, trial and error mostly. <laughs> By the way, if you see me looking down, I'm taking notes every now and then. That's what I'm, I'm doing down here. I, I thought it was significant when you said that sometimes when you meet a new person that you can kind of wave it off and say that you don't really want to get into it. Yeah. And it sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah yeah Caitlin did yeah. you want to talk did you want to talk about that no I was just um it's almost a game that people that stammer uh play with themselves depending on their level of f f fluency is how long in this conversation with this stranger can I pass as a fluent person and you can stammer a few times and and they won't th think any thing of it yeah right yeah and, and i can imagine and you can tell me if i'm wrong but yeah I, I can imagine you don't necessarily want to explain everything that you just explained to me you know every time you meet a new person i mean you, you seem very comfortable talking about it but still it's like a five minute you don't want to go through that every time you you just want to get on with your your science i would imagine like this you know uh, that's the sense I'm getting from you anyway. Um. Yeah. And, you know, that was something that I really grappled with is at first I really felt compelled to sort of explain myself to everybody. And mm. part of that, I think, was this perception I had of like, oh, well, I want people to think that I've got everything together and that, you know, I can do all this great stuff and I don't want to, I don't want them to leave me out of things because they don't think I can do it, right? So it was, it was something, you know, really it was internalized ableism on my part where I was just trying so hard to pass for 
you know, quote unquote, normal person. Um, and really, I was putting myself in a, a situation that was, you know, looking back on it, not healthy for me and not fair to the people around me, um, you know, to, to try to pretend that, that, you know, I was something I wasn't. And when I um, really started connecting with people at the IAGD, the nonprofit that I help out with, um, you know, it connected me to other people with disabilities in the geosciences, which I didn't think existed. And I mean, I really felt before I hooked up with them that I was kind of alone in the struggle that people yeah. with disabilities had long, you know, they just get pushed out. They're not around. And, you know, I would, I do these games where I'd be like, how many disabled geologists can I think of? And right. when I came back to get my PhD, the number was one. Oh, one. Wow. And I was like, this is like, how am I going to make this work? Yeah. And, you know, one of the biggest things that the IAGD gave me was a sense of community, right? Uh, suddenly I realized I wasn't the only one. There yeah. are lots of us at all career stages from student to professional. And it was a game changer to go on field trips and attend conferences with people I didn't have to explain myself to. Yeah, I would say absolutely the same thing. That. Uh, do you mind if we, I do want to come back to that and we won't forget, I've written it down. Um, do you mind, I wanted to ask if you could help me understand ableism a little bit better, like what that is, because I think that could be really valuable digging into that. So ableism is preconceived notions of some sort of deficit related to disability. So ableism is basically so there are different ways of viewing disability. And one of those is called the deficit model. It's basically where if you think of disability, you equate that with some sort of um, lesser or negative connotation, right? Somebody who has a disability is less than somebody who doesn't in some way. That's think, what uh, leads to ableism, right? I think I think, Caitlin, you and I talked about the medical model versus the social model. And it sounds like the deficit model is similar to the medical model. Where yeah. the assumption, yeah, very yeah. similar. Uh, the deficit model is, is more socially based, you know, where it's, you know, it's, it's not just that you're physically lesser. It's that, you know, somehow you're lesser in other ways. We actually deal with this a lot on, uh, well, we've dealt with this a couple of times on some of our field trips when we interact with the general public. You know, our groups get attention where, we, you know, we roll up in wheelchair accessible vehicles and all of a sudden you have several dozen people with walkers and wheelchairs and guide dogs, you know, like the whole nine yards. Like we get attention and the things that some people say it, even when they're trying to, they think it's a compliment, but yeah. it's not. You're like, oh, that's so good for a person in a wheelchair. <laughs> or like, oh, that, you know, I, we actually have had people pat our wheelchair using students on the head. Uh, yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Like, oh my gosh. 
And that's all, yeah, yeah. That's, that's all from that deficit model, right? That's no, where any, that, uh, Oh, sorry. I was going to say any compliment of the form that's good for an X. Like those usually just don't say it. stay away from those. Those are usually bad. bad just, just stop. Just, just stop before the four. Uh. That's right. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. good. That's great. Don't Full qualify stop. it, right? Like, yeah. oh, that's so good for a girl. Oh, that's so good for someone like you. That's what we usually hear a lot of. They won't get explicit. They'll say, for someone like you. It's like, no. oh, cool, exactly. Just, just say it's good and stop. Yeah, just <laughs> say it's it good. <laughs> Thumbs up. That's all we need. Just, just move on. But what um, I realized, what I hadn't ever heard of until I started hanging out with other people with disabilities, especially people who had been born with disabilities and were much more connected to disability culture, was the idea of internalized ableism. Mm. So this, yeah. is, this is where it's not coming from an external source. It's coming from yourself. You're being hard on yourself because you're disabled. And it really spoke to me the first time one of my friends explained to me what this what what this internalized ableism was because I do it to myself all the time. Like I, I would never say the things I say to myself to somebody else, right? Like ever. And it's, you know, I'm so hard on myself and I, a lot of times I don't cut myself any slack. Um, there's an infamous story in the, in, in my sort of circle in the IAGD where um, a few years ago, I broke my foot at GSA, one of our big annual conferences. I, wa- I broke my foot from walking too much. Mm. My, yeah. Because of the, the way my left leg's been reconstructed, I limp and I lean very heavily on my right leg. So my right leg takes a lot more strain uh, than it should. And when my left leg starts hurting, I limp even more and I lean harder and harder on that right leg. And I was so busy and I had like all these places I needed to be and things I needed to do. And I just kept going and kept going and kept going. Even when my foot was so swollen, like I couldn't hardly get it in a shoe. I just kept going and kept going. And I gave myself a stress fracture because I wouldn't give myself a break. I wouldn't acknowledge to myself that have a disability. I can't do this. Like I can't operate like this. And, you know, so, I mean, I've actually literally hurt myself with my yeah. own internalized ableism because I won't give myself a break. Is it, I guess it sounds like you had some idea that, Oh, I, I should be able to do this. Or I should be able to do that as mm. opposed to recognizing that there's like a physical limitation there, but it's, um, but it, it kind of makes me think of what you said a minute ago about not wanting to be left out and not wanting right. to, to be left, left behind. So that's like a real source of that kind of pressure. So It, it very much is. It, it, a lot of it for me is one of those, you know, fear of missing out, you know, sort of situations where it's like, oh, yeah. but everybody else is going to go do this and I want to go do that. And, you know, and, it, and, yeah. And thinking about that, I mean, that kind of makes me think about why the social model that Caitlin and I talked about is so much more compassionate and so much more realistic in some ways and saying that let's just, let's recognize, I don't mean just, obviously it's not always a simple thing, but I let's recognize that some people do have disabilities and the, the compassionate and smart thing to do because we want more inclusion is to make accommodations for that 
and to lower the effort barriers, lower the participation barriers, like lower as many of those as, as we can identify. Right. Um, yeah. So that, that gives me a little bit better sense of, of ableism. It's like, it almost sounds like it has to do with expectations and it has to do with like a realistic or not outlook on the constraints that are there. I'm like either right. accepting or ignoring the constraints. Is that, that kind of in the right neighborhood? I also think it has something to do with a remarkably narrow view of the way things are quote unquote supposed to work. Um, one of the things that I've discovered, especially when we're trying to come up with say ways to make field work accessible, which is, has, you know, so many challenges it, it comes from this place of here are the things that are supposed to be done and these are the ways that we do them. Right, okay. And when things cannot be done in that way, we assume that's bad, hmm. right? And what to me was the most liberating was when I realized that ableism and, you know, this, this way of, it, it hinges on this idea of the right and wrong way to do things. There's that you have to do things this way or else it's bad, or there's some negative connotation there in geology. For example, there's all kinds of pushback on accessible field work because, you know, we'll get comments like, well, it's not real field work unless there's boots on the ground or, you know, things like, you know, unless you hiked that mountain yourself, you know, and collected the data yourself, you're no kind of real geologist. And it's, it, it's ableism that's tied up in the status quo. Basically it's, it's this idea that there's one set way to do things and any innovation that pushes outside of those, those boundaries is somehow lesser than the, than the traditional ways of doing things. So there's some resistance to alternatives and resistance to alternative oh, ways of looking at things. Very, very yeah. much so. It's, it, at times it, very, it just feels like you're just pushing against the current and it's, it's exhausting. There, there, there are some groups that are just so resistant uh, to, to these ideas and it's, it's an exhausting push sometimes to, to change those norms. I bet so it makes me think of in education I don't really know the history of it, but I, I know that, you know, now in a lot of, hopefully all universities, there's usually some kind of office that helps uh, folks with disabilities if they need extra time to take tests or any kind of other accommodations that there's specific offices that, that handle that. And, you know, it's, it's, if you can do it in education, hopefully you'd think that you could do it in other, you know, areas as, as well. But, you know, the challenge is, for, for geology anyway, is that <clears throat> a lot of students that need some sort of accommodation in the, in the geosciences and the kind of activities we do don't need accommodations for their everyday lives on campus. Right. Um, you know, for example, if I never left campus, I wouldn't need any kind of accommodation, right? We have elevators. I'm good, <laughs> Right. But I can't do, I can't be expected to go do field work like other people. There, I, I can't do it the way people assume we're going to do it. And the challenge is that for most geoscience activities, they're taking place off campus 
and they fall into this gray zone for uh, legal imperatives to accommodate students because they're off campus. You can say things like, oh, uh, that will make that trip optional instead of required. Well, optional things are not required to be accessible because students can opt out. Oh, that's Mm. unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can say something like, oh, having a a student with a disability on our trip would uh, be too much of a legal liability. What if they got hurt? And you can opt out as, you know, it's too legally burdensome. Or say, Anybody can get hurt on this thing. Oh. Right? <laughs> yes, that's right. That's, that's one of the things that, you know, we at the IAGD realize. People ask us all the time what kind of forms we have people sign before they can go on our field trips because surely they must be like practically books. And I was like, why? They're regular people going on a field trip. The same forms that everybody else signs are fine. Like, uh, yeah. Caitlin, I wonder, did you want to say anything about ableism or internalized ableism? I mean, we, we talked some about mm-hmm. that, but I just wanted to give you a chance to chime in if you had some thoughts. Mm-hmm. So we did talk about that at length in our own episode, but something I was uh, curious to ask Anita about these um, trips is whether when you get comments from the public, whether a lot of people say that it's so inspirational. And oh my gosh, yes. how do you feel about that? I think I can guess. <laughs> so, yeah, my friends call that inspiration porn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. With the IAGD, we do have to walk a fine line, and we're constantly aware of that issue that people with disabilities are very commonly used as pawns for good publicity. Um, people want to feel like they're doing something good by helping the disabled person. And, you know, we're a nonprofit. We have to fundraise to support ourselves. And there's this really fine line we have to walk with things like our promotional materials and the videos that we put out that we're not just being, that we're not being exploitative, right? That we're, we're not crossing over into inspiration porn, as some of our students call it, and just feeding that, you know, just gross side of ableism where, you know, they just feed off of this like, oh, look at that poor disabled person. And, oh, look, somebody has helped them. That's so good. And it's like, it just, it just gets gross. Like, I, it reminds me of there was a news story, like one of those feel-good news stories last year about uh, it, w- it had this video of a of a barber cutting a guy's hair, and the the guy who was getting the haircut was in a wheelchair, and they were out on the sidewalk because the barber shop was inaccessible. And the whole story was framed as like, what a wonderful human this barber is that he would come out and meet that poor disabled man and cut his hair. And right, I mean, as soon as this story started spreading over social media, all my friends with disabilities were like. That's not the story here. The story is that the barbershop is inaccessible. Mm. Like, the story is the barbershop needs a stinking ramp. Like, a haircut is not going to change that. 
he probably w- wanted to go in, you know, it maybe like you want to go inside right now. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you think this guy wants to get his haircut in public on the sidewalk? Like that's, it's all in how you frame it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> so yes, we, we really do have to work hard about the whole, like, you know, insp- and we can't stop what people say in public and we get the inspirational thing all the time. In fact, even when I give, you know, talks about this in the public, when we do a Q&A, I mean, it every, every time somebody's <laughs> going to lead with like, oh, this is just so inspirational. And, you know, before they even give their question, <laughs> uh, it is what it is. I should have liked this. I should have said this at the beginning, but uh, by the way, Caitlin and Anita, uh, as an able-bodied person, if I say anything uh, stupid or insensitive, totally okay to let me know. Please, it's t- totally fine <laughs> to call me out on it. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with learning stuff. I like learning. I think <laughs> you're doing things, great. So thanks. Okay, good. I was kind of, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that bothers me about inspiration porn about people saying oh this disabled person is so inspirational just by going about their life and doing things that able-bodied people do is like that disabled person doesn't exist to serve as a source of inspiration to others. It isn't like they wake up and say, oh, um, today I'm going to be in... They're just going about their day and so frame... Make it like that, that. It almost reminds me of the um, trope of the um, manic pixie dream girl. Do you know about this? Um, a female character um, again, again, a work. A fiction, 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 fiction. That's, I don't know, eccentric or oh, okay, um, quirky somehow. And this character exists as a plot device to show the male character, uh, um, some sort of um, deep lesson about life. Right, right. (laughs) That she's there to basically, you know, give him some like compassionate angle or something. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, look, he loves her despite of her quirkiness or despite of her whatever, right? It's Mm -hmm. like in spite of something, right? Yeah. You never see things from her perspective. And so when people say I'm inspirational, just for, say, giving a talk at a 
conference, which is the same thing everybody else is doing, um, I feel like a plot device. Yep. Uh, uh, (laughs) I think that's a great point. That's that's really well said. I'm gonna keep that. I'm gonna keep that in mind. <laughs> and that's such a concrete, like you've given us such a nice concrete example, like a concrete thing I can picture. Because in that example, you know, we don't get to see things from the manic pixie dream girl's perspective. Exactly. And, and and often the 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 lead is often a guy, and often suspiciously similar in beliefs and mannerisms to the writers who worked on the. <laughs> Um, yeah so it sounds like that um it's almost a kind of lack of empathy of like oh well those folks aren't trying to see the world as you experience it or they're not really trying to imagine like what is that like for you Uh, instead they're um noticing that uh uh, i mean you, you are pushing through something and you are like, if it, is it fair to say, like, you are overcoming something and you are pushing through something, but I, I, I do hear what you're saying about, like, that's not the only thing going on here and you don't want to be just reduced to that. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. It also, I think, shifts the focus incorrectly. You know, like you said, we are overcoming things because there are social and, there are social and physical barriers that are thrown up everywhere, for people with disabilities and that those structures are hard to overcome. But to me, when we focus on sort of these inspirational characters, it shifts the focus off of the many ways, the many barriers that society puts up to our full participation. And, you know, that's where the story is. And to me, it's a bit of, you know, a misdirection, um, you just made me think of some phrase like, um, you know, I'd be a lot less inspiring if you just accommodated me properly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's wonderful. Right? Like, if, if this wasn't anything, <laughs> like, this is just a day. <laughs> yeah. But, and that, uh, that, are you uh, okay, Caitlin, if we kind of shift to the next question? Was there another bit mm-hmm. you wanted to mention there? That kind of leads naturally into the next question for me is like, how can your colleagues as individuals be most helpful in their kind of day-to-day interactions with you? You know, what can your colleagues do to help you out or to, to, um, to be most helpful? Yeah. Caitlin, do you want to start? Um, I would say, uh, um, I already answered this in our own episodes. So I'd be interested to, to hear, um, but you had to say, and if there's um, anything I relate to, we can talk about that further. For for me in particular, um, there are really little things that I've noticed have made a really big difference. Um, part of that is, you know, just who I hang out with now, but you know, I was talking about my challenges with conferences and this like overbearing drive I have to, to do everything that everybody else is doing, even though I literally can't. Um, I, 
I started hanging out with some of my disabled friends at conferences. And when I start wearing out, they don't have to wait for me to say, I need a break. Right. They'll, they'll just, without making a big deal of it, without anything, they're like, they're like, Hey, let's go sit at this table over here and like get a drink or something. And I know what they're doing. You know, it's because I started limping really hard and they know I'm nearing my limit and like, they just don't make a big deal out of it. Right. Or if I have to bow out of something, they don't ask me why they don't drill me for excuses or reasons. They just say, okay, we'll see you later. We'll catch up then. And that has done so much for me personally, just being able to be more healthy about the boundaries that I set for myself because I don't feel that social pressure. You know, nobody, people don't make me feel bad for missing out. You know, they, and you know, it's just, it's really great to have people that don't drill, don't just grill you for every decision you make that, you know, that's really great in, in daily campus life. Um, People that know me will always ask, like, in mid-conversation, you know, we'll be walking down the hall, we'll be nearing the stairs, and they'll say, stairs or elevator, and they'll let me, like, pick which way we start walking, because some days I can do the stairs, and some days I can't, and we don't miss a beat, right? And I've noticed that I've started, because I, it's a need for me, I never assume anybody wants to take the stairs. Like, I never assume that. I... Mm just go for the accessible option and you know, cause the elevator works for everybody. Like, so we don't have to have that awkward base of the stairs conversation if we just go to the elevator. Hmm. But you know, so sometimes for me, it's a little bit of thinking past your typical experience, thinking out beyond yourself and taking a critical look at your daily environment and the environment that you create for others around you. Um, that can make a huge difference. Even little things. I, I encourage other scientists sometimes when, you know, they, they think, well, accessibility is such a big thing to tackle, right? There are just so many things. Once you start looking at it, the barriers are everywhere and it gets really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I was like, just pull back. Just think about, I would like somebody to visit me in my office what might the barriers be in different modes of navigating, right? Can a wheelchair user get to my office? Can a blind person find my office? Right, just little things like that make a big difference. Or think about your most favorite thing that you have about your science. Like if you could teach one thing to everybody about your science, what is it? Okay, how would you teach that to everybody? Right, think about the different modalities of you know, instruction and and how you can make that cool thing available to everybody. And it just starts people thinking in a broader way. And to me, that's what helps me the most is, is just people being a little more empathetic and just giving a few seconds of thought to people that don't operate like they do every day. I just make those little, you know, just, peek outside your comfort zone for just a little bit and say, well, what about everybody else on the planet? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that, that's very helpful. <laughs> yeah. And not assuming physical ability 
for me is a big one because my disability, like I said, is often easily hidden. They assume I don't have a disability. And there are a lot of other people that that's true of, that they have a disability that is not obvious. So Mm -hmm. you can't assume that everybody can do everything the way you do. So it's just those friend little things like stairs or elevator. Don't make that decision for them or mm-hmm. just stopping and asking at the, in the, you know, at some point in an event, if, you know, just reminding people that if they have a, a, an accommodation or a need that would make them enjoy this event more, you know, let us know, not in front of everybody, but, you know, just pass us a note or let us know and we'll do what we can. So empathy, empathy is helpful. For uh, conference organizers is the, is the little box that says, oh, do you have any, is that helpful or not? Is the little box that's like, can you tell us about any disabilities or special accommodation? Um, is that good or would it be? It's great. You know, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. What we're trying to do is get everybody to have one and act, okay. to actually read it and do what is asked. So um, we, the IGD, when I say we, is, has worked with several conference organizers when we get feedback from our members about the lack of accommodation. Hmm. And they'll say, they'll say things like, look, I filled out that box months ago, right? I don't know why when I showed up to the conference, you're, you're acting like you got, you know, caught unawares when like we did what you said to do to let you know that we were coming yeah. and things still aren't ready. So yeah, those boxes are great when they're actually attached to actions. <laughs> Follow through. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gotta follow through. Caitlin, did you uh, did you have any reactions to the individual accommodation stuff we were talking about? Hmm. Um. I like it when people uh, um ask if I need accommodations for rather than um um being the one to bring it up bring it up uh so for for example when i give a conference talk i think every single time i have to ask for extra time or i have to explain myself um and explain that the amount of time I'm going to need, I really can't tell until the day um, since the speed at which I can speak is so variable and I just can't control that. And so if somebody asks ahead of time, um, would you like some extra time for this talk? Um, That that would be very helpful. And it it shows that somebody's actually thought about it ahead of time, right? And to me, that's, that's, that's really big for a feeling of inclusion, that sense of belonging that a lot of people with disabilities don't get Mm. um, in, you know, especially in science fields that feeling that people have actually thought about it and, yeah. and care enough to ask, I think is really important too. Mm-hmm. Any other 
on the kind of social scale, are there other special accommodations that would be helpful for people with your, your particular uh, or similar disabilities, uh, Anita? Like anything else that we wanted to add to that list, I guess, is what I'm asking. You know, I think sometimes it's just there are challenges that I'm not even sure how you know, when people ask me for recommendations, like I'm not even sure how to get around. I just know it's a barrier. Um, you know, going back to the whole conferences thing, so much of the activities are standing only with no place to sit. Mm-hmm. And there is a really finite limit to how long I can stand up. And, you know, poster sessions, you're standing uh, up. Yeah. Networking events, you're standing up. Right. You know, like, everything, you know, everything from happy hours to your, you know, your presentations, it's all standing up. And even like we have gone round and round with some groups trying to get people uh, stools to sit on during poster talks because we hear everything from, oh, it's a fire hazard, you know, to have a chair. (laughs) And, you know, like, I mean, all kinds of reasons, right? It's like, like I couldn't get one at one conference. I, after I'd broke my foot, I was at another conference and um, I was using one of those knee carts to get around. And that's oh, yeah. what I was sitting on at my poster too, because I couldn't get a chair. Yeah. Oh. Um, but you know, it's all, all that standing and you know, the ones that, the ones that kill me are where they'll have these little receptions and they'll have chairs around the outside of the room and everybody's put their backpacks and posters and crap on the chairs. Oh. <laughs> and, and it's like 90% of the chairs are full of people's stuff. And those people are just out socializing and chatting and all this stuff. And it's like, who's, why? Like, <laughs> yeah. So that somebody ideally would have, maybe should have thought about, well, let's have a place for the stuff. Yeah. Cause there's no place know. for their stuff yeah. right? other so, than on the chairs. So yeah, it gets on the place. chairs. Uh-huh. And then it's not something that that you can yeah so let's have a place for the stuff and then chairs where people can sit if they if they need to yeah okay that, that's a good point and anything like, else you want to add oh I could go on on this for hours <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, I mean you know because conferences really have a lot of challenges for people with physical disabilities the distance between rooms at a large conference center. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh, like the miles you have to walk in a day H- at a conference. AGU is pretty challenging for that. Mm-hmm. There's entire different, you know, buildings. Yep. AGU is away. my nemesis, and I'm not saying this in a mean way towards <laughs> AGU, but like. The fall meeting or the whole organization? The fall has, meeting. Okay, <laughs> AGU fall meeting is my nemesis, right. not AGU. Sorry, AGU. <laughs> we like it. It's, it's so big. And there's never anywhere to sit. I mean, it's just like these giant corridor hallways. And you either are sitting on the floor, which, I mean, for somebody with a bad leg, it's pretty hard to get up and down off the floor. Yeah. So you're sitting on the floor, if you're sitting anywhere, and, like, no place to sit, no place to rest. Every event is like a standing event that's a half mile from the last event you came from. And it's... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) On top of that, the place you're staying isn't necessarily close to the conference. No, center, because you, you can't know? afford, you know, five hundred bucks a night to stay on site. Yeah. So, you know, you're either, you know, what I've started taking, um, like Ubers, 
I don't even try to walk to where I'm staying anymore yeah. because usually yeah. by the end of an AGU conference, I can barely stand up like a day. Mm-hmm. So like I just get a ride and then I don't have to worry about how close I am to the conference. At, at the conference there, I broke my foot. I came up with this really cool hack and I started taking Ubers to the other side of the conference center. <laughs> I literally would have them drive hey. me around the block. And it would put me, it would cut the distance I had to walk really significantly. <laughs> it was only a couple bucks. And I shared that story on Twitter. That was at GSA in Indianapolis. Mm. And I shared that story on Twitter because somebody's asking, oh, like, how do people with disabilities, like, what are your great hacks for getting around conferences and taking care of yourself? And somebody tagged me. And I was like, look, I'm the last person to ask about taking care of yourself at a conference because I'm, I, I do horrible at it. Like, I'm the worst I taking care of myself. I was like, what? And someone's like, didn't you walk around a whole conference with a broken foot? Yes, yes, that comes up all the time. It's like, I was like, but I figured out this hack with Ubers and I took an Uber around the other side of the conference center. Well, GSA's social media person saw that tweet and they actually reached out to me and GSA offered to reimburse me Yay. for the Uber rides as an accommodation. Oh, nice, nice. Inclusion, right? They were like, oh my gosh, we're so sorry you had such a rough go of it. You know, send us, send us receipts and we'll reimburse you for the Ubers you took. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, see, that's the way you do it, man. And that's, you just brought up something that, okay, Twitter can be a horrible uh, nightmare hellscape, but science Twitter, (laughs) science Twitter, one of the really nice things. Yes. Science Twitter, yeah, one of the really nice things about it is you just hear from people directly. You just hear from, like, you know, you, you know, Anita, just put your experience up there. There's no filter, there's no editor, you know. And that's that honestly has helped me broaden my view in a lot of ways. Um, you know, uh, like women are putting their experiences on there um, and, and the different ways that that experience could be different than what I'm experiencing. So, like, that's really helpful. Um, it is really helpful. Yeah. And of course, not that I'm saying all the burdens should go on the person experiencing that, um, you know, uh, but sometimes uh, an education is is helpful for me. And, and so I well, do appreciate Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I think one of the best things about Twitter for me is being able to listen and learn from people that I would never have a chance to meet in person. Mm-hmm. Um, people with many different life experiences and very different experiences with what I consider familiar situations, you know, and it's getting that diversity of perspective that I think is really important. And there's a trick to that on Twitter. Um, I highly encourage people to follow a very diverse group of scientists on there. Find people from very different perspectives from yours and do not feel compelled to chime in with your two cents every time they voice a challenge or a problem that they're facing because you don't know, I don't care what your personal experience is, like you don't know what they're going through. And so, you know, I have seen people get in trouble on Twitter or, you know, jumping in with what they feel is a helpful comment. Like, oh, well, I just do this. Or why didn't you do that? It works for me, the, you know, abled white person who's never had any problems accessing anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, just listen and learn, yeah. right? Just just and learn I, from people. Don't assume you have to contribute to every conversation. 
That's right. And and as somebody who has put his foot in his mouth before, uh, resist the urge to say, oh, I, I can... Uh, oh yeah, I experienced something like that too. Yeah. But like, don't 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 try to equate it. You know. Exactly. I, I, right. Like like I, I I do try to find ways in to empathize. Like I do try, try to like map it onto my experience somewhat. But it's you got to be really careful not to assume that that gives you kind of full empathetic access to what that experience is like because your your experience is going to be different. Right. Um, yeah, it helps you understand a little bit and to contextualize it in a way that your brain can understand. Yeah. Right. But it doesn't really like put you on the same footing. <laughs> right. As scientists, we all know that extrapolation is really dangerous. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's exactly yeah. what we're talking about here. Yes. <laughs> I'll take that one data point and extrapolate that into a full experience. <laughs> Yeah, one day I had a leg cramp too, therefore I yeah. know. <laughs> you would be surprised how many times I get comments like that. Like, yeah. it is, oh my God. Like, the number of times I'll hear like, oh yeah, I like I hurt my knee in high school or like I had ankle surgery once or something. It's like. Mm. <laughs> and that, yeah. that, okay. that, that might get you 10% of the way there or 20% of the way there, but don't, don't assume that it gets you 100% like, of the yeah, way so there. Yeah, so remember that that way you felt like the day after surgery where you felt like total garbage? Yeah, like if that feeling never went away, now you're getting there. That's right. <laughs> where like Just, nothing seems to want to work and you're sinking tired. Yeah, now we're getting there. Just every day like that. Every day. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I think this is a really good question. Caitlin came up with it and um, it's, it's, it's not one that I would have thought of. So I'm really glad that Caitlin came up with it and thought of it. And I'll just ask it to you verbatim as she worded it. What are the good things about having your particular disability as a scientist? Um, if you can identify some. Okay. That's, that's actually surprisingly easy. It's nice. one of the things okay. that's really helped me overcome my, you know, the internalized ableism that we were talking about earlier is looking at it from that perspective, right? Is that it's not all negative. There are some really good things that come out of it. And one of them is the, the ability to problem solve in very different ways mm. than other people. That's because, yeah, because I'm used to, and I've seen this in other people with disabilities as well, because problem solving is a daily part of our experience. It, it kind of compels you to, to look outside of traditional solutions to get at what, what you need or what needs done. Um, when I do field work is when this really comes into play, but I notice myself doing it you know, on a daily basis as well. Um, it's the ability to look at a situation, strip away the unnecessary parts that people seem to think are necessary and get right at the heart of the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, field work is a great example of that. You know, I used to fret about the fact that I couldn't go on these big long hikes to get out to certain areas. And then I realized two things. One, that hike is almost always pointless, right? 
Like there's usually an access road or I can fly my drone. I have a drone license and get up there. Or like there's, there are often that hike has nothing to do with the data that you're collecting, (laughs) right? It is, it is fluff. It is, it's just a, it is not the science, right? So, you know, like it's not a part of the equation, even though that's one of the very first things people think of when they think about field work being inaccessible. Oh, well, if you can't hike, who cares? Like, like I tell people all the time, geology is a science, not a sport. It, Mm. it doesn't, Mm. you don't put your time to the top on your publications, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, and I beat that last group of scientists by, you know, 14 minutes. Woo. It's like, yeah. it's not, it's not a sport. It doesn't matter. So being able to look outside of sort of the traditional boxes and innovate, um, as, as just a regular way of doing things, yeah. just immediately looking outside of the, you know, traditional or expected way of doing things has been incredibly yeah. valuable. You're very used to considering the general case, the more a more general case. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it gives you those different access. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great answer. Um, mm-hmm. Caitlin, any any reactions to that? Hmm. Uh, so I was thinking about something that we didn't re- really get to in our episode, uh, but I know I've talked about it offline with the you, Dan, which is that I th- th- think stam- stammering has um, made me a better writer since... I don't switch uh, switch words as often as a lot of people that, that stammer do, uh, but th- th- there is still th- the temptation to do so. And so, so I would say that people that stammer are very, very good at s- synonyms. Um, we're s- sort of like the th- th- thesaurus says in our heads and you know you start speaking and you think of five different ways to say the same thing uh choose the easiest one based on the sounds that are giving you trouble that day and then keep editing that as you go and so when you're writing a paper and you're faced with a blank page you're spoiled for choice you can think of five ways to say everything but instead of choosing the one that's the easiest physically to say you just choose the best one nice uh, yeah it's because you're used to thinking carefully about words exactly and that comes through in in writing and you know that's to me the biggest benefit of you know bringing a broader group of people into science 
because those different experiences are all valuable, mm-hmm. right? They, they bring some really remarkable talent to, to science because of all these very different ways that we experience the world. Absolutely. Uh, so if it's okay, I thought I would bring us back to the International Association for Geoscience Diversity, the IAGD. Org. How did you get involved with them, Anita? The, you know, so that's kind of a fun story too. Yeah. Um, so when I was getting my PhD, um, initially I was working in volcano geophysics for my research area, which why I would pick something basically on the most inaccessible landform. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment or something. Um, it was, it was very difficult to go do geophysical surveys on volcanoes (laughs) with my particular disability. Um, I did have some very good successes with that, but it was, it was getting very difficult and I was starting to really have some problems in not just pushing forward, you know, with the science, which I was figuring out ways to do, you know, I was trying, I was starting to sort of innovate my way around the fieldwork problem, but socially and, you know, from an inclusion standpoint, I, it was being made increasingly obvious that I did not belong. And I was really, I was, I was on the verge of dropping out of my PhD and just walking away. And I um, had talked to my department about switching gears and writing the second part of my dissertation on, um, cause I'd already published in volcano geophysics. And I was, I was talking about maybe switching to geoscience ed and looking at the disability problem and how to tackle uh, field work and making field work more accessible through technology. But you know, I, I had this sort of shoestring budget idea of using like cameras on remote triggers and just sort of whatever I could cobble together with what I already owned and, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks or something like that. And I wrote up this proposal for this little project to do for the second half of my dissertation. And I had my office mate read it over before I sent it to my advisor. And then almost the next, it wasn't the next day, but it was really soon after I sent it off to my advisor, that same office mate said, you're not on Twitter, are you? And at the time I wasn't. I said, no. And he said, I'm going to send you a link to something. You really need to read this. And it was a call for student participants for an IAGD project looking at accessibility and field work. And the project description was, it was like what I had just written, except scaled up beefed out and with money. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. And he said, it's a recruitment call for undergrads to go on these like accessible field trips and trial all this tech and inclusion stuff. And he said, you should contact them. And so I did, I I totally cold called them. Like I, I emailed them out of, they didn't know me. I didn't know them like total strangers. And I emailed them and I basically said, Hey, uh, you don't know me. I saw your call for student participants. I don't want to be a student participant. I want to be a researcher. 
you should put me on your project. (laughs) (laughs) And here's why. And I just sort of laid out like what I could bring to the project. And I thought this was either the bravest or most ridiculous thing I've ever done in my life. Right. Like, sure. I'm just going to cold call some scientists and say, Hey, you know who you need on your team? Me. Like, <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. But they emailed back almost immediately and they're like, and I, I remember the first line of the email back was, it sounds like you were born for this project. Hey, oh, that's a nice thing to say. And that was sort of the beginning of a, a beautiful friendship. <laughs> And I ended up, my dissertation, I had so much to say on accessible field work that the geophysics ended up going in the appendix and the whole dissertation was on accessible field work. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, and I've just never looked back since. So they, that, they gave me a sense of community. They literally rescued me out of the, uh, out of walking away from science and geology and <laughs> gave me a, avenue to continue and a community of people that I'm very close with and yeah so they're they're a pretty awesome group are you keeping up with them in the the pandemic period have there been emails and conference calls and things and yes and no um so this is all on me because I'm the director of operations so I'm supposed to be handling the day-to-day stuff and while the semester was going, which it had, it, it was going right up until, you know, fairly recently. I was just too overloaded. Yeah, you know, yeah. everyone's like, Hey, yeah. we should have like zoom happy hours and we should do, you know, like get everybody together and all this. And I'm like, I have no bandwidth for that. Like, yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about doing that now. Like we're moving into that. You know, it's a little late, but better late than never, <laughs> I guess, you know, people with disabilities are, are a lot more, familiar with this whole sheltering in place thing than a lot of people because there are a number of people with disabilities that are immunocompromised or have some other reason that they can't just be out and about on a regular basis and some of them are doing remarkably well (laughs) compared to other people because practice (laughs) they practice like they know they know the drill here but yeah I would like to be doing more and I'm I'm trying to Sort of do more. We're all volunteers. Um, n- none of the leadership of IIGD gets paid, so it's basically stuff we do in our free time, and we all have full time jobs. So some, so even like our level of tweeting or social media output ebbs and flows with how busy the leadership of the IIGD is at that particular moment. Just like we don't usually put out much. Oh, you know, around finals time, or you know, we'll go quiet when the semesters are first starting up because we're all academics and we're super busy. But yeah, I'm trying to do a little better at that. I wish we were doing more than we are. It's, it's hard. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm getting very little done during the, you know, kind yeah. of, we're in a, a lockdown in the UK still. It's slowly bits and pieces of it are being lifted, but mm-hmm. yeah, with two working parents at home and an eight year old, uh, it's, there's a lot going on and it's, uh, it's, it's going to be okay to prioritize mental health and stability over productivity. Like that just has to be okay. Um, so that changes the order in which, you know, a person might attack things. And, but uh, yeah, so I, I kind of, I was trying to think of an alternative way to phrase this question, but I can't think of one. So we're just going to go for it anyway. <laughs> um, and it's, it's kind of, 
well, you, you can you can see it coming a mile away, probably. But you know, um, so if there are people who with disabilities who want to get into the geosciences, or maybe already are, maybe they're already on that journey. Um, are there particular bits? I mean, you've you've already given a lot of really nice bits of wisdom along the way, but I don't know. I'm just wondering. Maybe there's somebody listening now who might benefit from hearing something, you know, directly from from either of you about. Um, well, I don't know. What, what would you say to them? Um, I would say one of the most important things is to to find a support network. So, you know, when you're choosing a program, especially, you know, sometimes geology is sort of a found major, and a lot of times we don't pick a geology department until after we're already going to a school. Mm -hmm. um, but when, especially in grad school, you know, do your homework and make sure that it's the kind of culture that's going to support you uh, as a whole person. Um, I think that's really important because if you're, constantly fighting an uphill battle even to feel like you belong needless to say your science is going to suffer right mm -hmm. i mean there's only so much bandwidth a, a human has um the other thing is to think about what kind of science you're interested in and how you would do that with your particular disability so a lot of people will say things like, oh, well, you know, people with physical disabilities, they can go into remote sensing stuff because then they don't have to go in the field and they don't have to do like physical things. And that's true. I have, I have people, I have friends that are physically disabled and they do remote sensing for that reason is because it's accessible to them. Um, but I don't think you should limit yourself in that way, that goes back to the, the narrow-minded thinking I was talking about earlier. Instead, think about the science that you're passionate about and then think about ways to make that work. Hmm. Um, you know, come at it from, well, I can't do it like everybody else does it, but what if I do it, you know, what if I can, can come at it some other way? And if you can find a supportive, you know, advisor or mentor, those solutions come a lot quicker than if you're trying to come up with them on your own. And one of the things that I realized um, after an advisor came up with the idea is that a lot of the societies that offer uh, research money for like undergrad research projects or graduate research projects, um, I started writing in my budget money for accommodations. Uh, like, you know, there was this one place where I knew I wouldn't be able to get to about a third of my field site. So I wrote in money for friends to come with me and get the data in the places I couldn't reach. And, you know, I never had a place turn me down for those accommodations or say like, oh, well, this is superfluous. You can't have money for that. Like, ask. That's, that's one of the big things is a lot of people are really shy to ask mm. for support uh, monetary support or just any kind, you know, like advising support or anything, you won't know unless you ask. So I think one of my biggest like words of wisdom is, is like people, you know, like people don't know what you need unless you say so. So, yeah. you know, put yeah. it out there and, and see. Are there concrete ways that you might recommend testing the culture? You mentioned trying to find out of the research culture in the department or unit that you want to get involved with is, is supportive. Do you have thoughts on how to do I that? I do. Um, part of it, you can, you can, 
So yeah, I have sort of a method. I don't know if it works for everybody, but step one is to look at their promotional materials and their call for students. How, what, what they say in the announcement is equally important as to what they don't say in the announcement. If there's not even a casual boilerplate line about accommodations or working with students, you know, from all identities or like, you know, a lot of schools even have some boilerplate statement and a lot of geology departments won't even have that. And so to me, like that's bare minimum, right? That somebody's given two seconds of thought to the fact that all of our students might not be able, well off white kids, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like something there that says there's some, you know, thought culture there that that might be a little more inclusive. If they have a personalized statement where you can tell they've gone beyond the legalese that the university wrote up, that's bonus points, right? Now we're now we're on the right track. And then just talking to the students that are already in the department, I cannot emphasize that enough for future students, right? You, yeah, just ask them. Right. Students will very often help other students. Right. They they're they're happy to talk about their lives and what they do and their instructors. And I think that's a really important step is to talk to people who are already there and get a gauge for do you feel supported? Do you feel like you have a, you know, healthy work life culture? Are you being sort of expected to work yourself to death? And, you know, Asking those very frank questions ahead of time can save a lot of problems later on. That's good. Yeah. You, you kind of made me also think about the, uh, the, in the promotional materials. I thought about, oh, it could actually be discouraging if, for example, a geology department really emphasized the whole, uh, we're going to go on hikes and it's going to be physically demanding. And like that if they emphasize that, a little too hard that actually could be discouraging for somebody with a disability. It kind of might give them a feeling of like, uh, okay, I don't know. There's actually you research know. on that. There are papers. About yeah. yeah. There's literature on that. It, it is actually uh, one of the discouraging factors uh, for people with disabilities is if all of your promotional materials are like, look like something from like an outdoor gear company catalog, like hanging off of mountainsides and, doing all kinds of wild stuff like that. It attracts a very certain type of student, but it also pushes away a lot of other students, Um, Mm -hmm. students with disabilities, students that have carer responsibilities for other family members or full-time jobs where they can't just disappear off the planet for six weeks at a stretch. You know, there, there are lots of reasons uh, why those kind of promotional materials, like I'm not going to lie. That's what attracted me to geology. Like the field trips were what hooked me as an undergrad. I was like, oh my gosh, I can get class credit for going to cool places and hiking around. Sign me up. Yeah. Like, it wor- I mean, it does work, right? It, it is a, an attractive thing for mm-hmm. some students, but for a lot of students, you know, even there's been study looking at, uh, well, there've been sort of uh, a lot of anecdotal evidence about um, people from urban neighborhoods and how that message of like outdoor adventuring in the wilderness is kind of off-putting to them as well. If they've never camped a night in their life and there's yeah. suddenly there's, you're expected to do it for course credit, you know, it's that, 
I mean, there's so much cognitive energy there doing something completely out of your comfort zone that, you know, and in some places it's just not safe for students of color. There are places, say, in the southern part of the U.S. where you better take a good hard look at those field sites and make sure everybody's safe running around in the woods down there. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of considerations and just assuming that everybody wants to go on a wilderness adventure, you know, can be one of the barriers for sure. Yeah. That makes me think of another thing that I, I learned about on Twitter. The, um, so this was a very good point that, you know, if you're planning field trips, I mean, there are some countries where it's literally not safe for, say, LGBT right. folks to go. Like where yeah. literally they might be putting their lives in danger doing that. And so if you're an organizer, maybe maybe skip those places. Right. <laughs> maybe, like, like, maybe look someplace else. Well, in fact, that's yeah. one of the things when people <laughs> ask us about planning accessible field trips. You know, we have sort of different ways that we do that. But one of the ones that we emphasize is location planning has to be at the top of that list for inclusive field work. You have to look at things like, one, can all students who are going on this trip access this location in some way, mm -hmm. right? If the answer is no, pick someplace else. Like, then yeah. don't go there. Don't go right? there, yeah. It's, yeah. you know, there's so few, I can, it's so hard for me to even think of an example of some geologic phenomenon that's so rare <laughs> that there's only one place on earth that you could possibly take <laughs> students to show them this thing. It's entirely localized within North Korea. Sorry. We get <laughs> right. Like it has to be there or nowhere. Right. <laughs> it's just not true. Right. There are yeah. alternatives. So find some place where everybody <laughs> is safe from yeah. the outside world, you know, and those influences and that they can access in some way, either physically or through technology, you know, with the drones or, you know, some of our trips we use like Wi-Fi enabled iPads to live stream from different locations across the site. But, you know, step one, pick a site that everybody can experience. Yeah. Nice. So. Uh, Caitlin, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that specific question because I don't, I don't think we touched on that one mm -hmm. in our episode that if there's somebody listening with disabilities that's getting involved or wants to get involved, what would you say to them? Mm -hmm. I suppose I, I have a bit of a difficult time thinking how to answer that just because um, it isn't something I've really considered when I chose my career path. I mean, I just chose what I wanted to, to do um but you know i have a i can only really speak specifically to stammering um but i would say that if that there's someone out there that stammers and that that um has certain things they want to do with their life if they were fluent um perhaps things that that they are putting off in the hopes that they will be become f f fluent i would say you don't have 
to be fluent and whatever those things are, you should just go uh, uh, ahead and do them. You don't have to fix whatever other people say is wrong with your abilities. Um, you don't have to speak like everybody else or, or walk like everybody else or anything like that 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 or even think of like anybody else um just because there is a ableism out there in society doesn't mean that you have to put that expectation on yourself well said That's yes right. yes yeah very well said thanks for that thank you well i think um we're probably nearing the end naturally i think is there anything else that either one of you would like to talk about um. no no <laughs> we covered a lot it was good yeah mm -hmm. it was really good um well, thanks so much, Anita, for coming on and for agreeing to, to video chat with us and for this sharing. This was fun. Your... Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. was... Thanks. It was fun. Yeah, really fun. And uh, I'm sure it, it'll really be nice to share it with the world and put it out there. And thank you, Caitlin, for joining us. And thanks for the, having this idea and for sharing it with me. You know, this is going to be a really nice uh, series now. You know, we can have at least two episodes. Mm -hmm. But... Actually, I was thinking about it the other day. I mean, we don't, we can actually do as many of these as we want, right? This, uh, you know, we can expand it to many different disabilities and kind of, mm -hmm. and they don't even have to be next to each other. We could release one now and then mm -hmm. one later. And then like, if, if something comes up, there can be a part three sometime in the future, you know, mm -hmm. it's all totally fine. Um, well, I'll just stop the recording and we can, um, if you hang around just a minute, we can talk, sure. you can kind of wrap up a little bit, but, uh, Thanks, Anita, and thanks, Caitlin, Dr. Thank Marshall, you. Dr. Norton. <laughs> Very good. Okay. There you have it. Thanks for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, we'll be back with more disability episodes in the future. Not necessarily back-to-back. -back. It might not be the very next one, but there will be more in the future. Here is all the Twitter info. You can find Dr. Marshall on Twitter at BakingSodaVolk, V-O-L-C. And you can find the IAGD.org on Twitter at AccessibleGeo, G-E-O. Thanks again to Caitlin Naughton for co-producing this series with me. You can find Dr. Naughton on Twitter at Caitlin Naughton, just like her name is spelled. And you can find a collection of her science writing on her blog at ClimateSight.org, S-I-G-H-T. And I'm Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, and you can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod. Okay, so I said to share something at least mildly personal at the end of each episode. It's like a thanks for reaching the end. Uh, I don't know how personal this is, but there's someone who practices trumpet every day near where I live. 
and they're getting better. And if a day goes by and I don't hear them practice, I miss it. So keep going, trumpet person. Keep practicing. I like to hear it. And, you know, it honestly wouldn't matter if I did or didn't like to hear it. You should practice either way. But I do like it. So do your thing. Thanks for joining us again. Take care. Bye-bye.